Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. This is Dan Turchin, host of AI and the Future of Work, CEO of Insight Finder, the system of intelligence for IT operations, and executive chairman at PeopleRain, an AI platform for an IT and HR employee service. If you enjoy the podcast, subscribe to our newsletter. It's at peoplerain.io slash podcast. That's people rain, like the reign of a queen, .io slash podcast, and you'll get bonus content and insights from our guests. You know, we talk a lot about the end user experience and how AI makes it better with things like virtual agents that can answer common questions and knowledge graphs that help live customer service agents when the virtual agent doesn't have the right answer. Well, today we're going to shift a bit. We're going to shift focus to the unsung heroes of service management those DevOps and SRE teams that are responsible for keeping the lights on. The, the topic of application observability is more relevant now than ever because every organization is digital first and every employee is completely dependent on technology services while working from home. It's really tough to be a human playing a game whose rules are defined by machines. How do you make sense of billions of log files and metrics and change events to figure out the root cause of a problem? Well, the, the answer is you don't. IT ops teams these days rely on modern automated anomaly detection and root cause analysis to be able to take back control. Today's guest has seen the problem of machine data and IT ops from every angle. As a developer, a CTO, a practitioner, Today, we're lucky. We're going to get insights into the future of service assurance. Greg Poirier is currently an architect at uh, one of the leading APM application performance management companies, New Relic. Greg's been in the space for many years. He is a frequent speaker at industry events. He's got strong opinions on the right way to do IT ops. If you don't already, I encourage you to follow my friend Greg on Twitter. He's at GRE. P-O-R-Y, Repery. Without further ado, it is my pleasure to welcome Greg to the podcast. Greg, welcome. Let's get started with an easy one. How did you get into this space? Oh, yeah. So after I graduated college, uh, I got a job out in San Francisco and it was doing infrastructure for a, a fairly large size startup, like on the cusp of going public. Uh, so like couple hundred engineers, I think. Uh, and as part of my job, I ended up helping build out, of all things, uh, Sensu uh, and, and for our engineers. We were in the process of moving away from Nagios uh, over to Sensu, and I got to experience all of the joys of the old Sensu, learning all I could about RabbitMQ and uh, Redis and helping teams figure out how to easily transition to this model where they got meaningful data about their services in production using like tools that they wrote that they controlled and that they were ultimately eventually responsible for. And I had so much fun doing that, that it just became something I really wanted to keep doing. 
Now, a lot of our listeners understand service management from, call it the, the front end of the house, and may not understand as much about what's required to keep the lights on. Why don't you um, describe a day, a day in, your, in your life and, and, and why, why is it that what you do matters? Sure. I have an interesting job at New Relic. Um, the, over the course of the past seven or eight years, I've gotten progressively further away from the keyboard, so to speak. Um, so my day-to-day -day involves working with a lot of teams at New Relic uh, to help them kind of navigate infrastructure. Um, primarily, one of my big things is compliance right now, which is very interesting. Uh, again, from the like infrastructure perspective, like here's how you build a system that fits in with all these compliance rules. And it, most of the teams that I work with are at that bottom strata of, of um, technology. The three teams I work the most directly with are our network engineering, our load balancing, uh, and our data center engineering teams. Uh, and these are, some of the hardest working, like nose to the grindstone people I've ever seen. Uh, and and I, I grew up doing this stuff, right? Like my first, first job was at an internet service provider and I eventually ended up being a system administrator there, building out data centers, migrating data centers, like doing all of that uh, nuts and bolts kind of work as well as just administering, you know, a couple of hundred Unix boxes. Uh, and so I have an affinity for working with, with the kind of people that do this work because it's really fun to see like, oh, here's how you do it today, which is very, very different. But it's still, like it's really still traditional ops work. Uh, you know, you've got routes that are flapping and you've got uh, load balancers that hit capacity that, you know, you've got to monitor these things. You have to be like, observability has, always played a part in this, but it's only gotten better over time. And having constant insight into how these critical path components of infrastructure work just all the time accurately uh, is fundamental to doing it well. It's a highly underrated role. Yeah. yeah. That and being a construction worker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've been around a lot of great products. You've helped develop a lot of iconic products. You talked about being on the ground floor at Sensu. Tell our audience what's required to build great products, culturally, in terms of uh, engineering discipline, uh, work patterns. What, what, what are the common attributes you've seen? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think there are, uh, it's funny, I was thinking about this earlier today outside of preparing for, for talking in a podcast, there's, there are a handful of things like on the product side, there's this human component that I think a lot of people fail to recognize, which is that people want to be led, but they also want to be heard and have their needs met. Right. So striking that balance of, okay, I've got my shining city on the hill. If nobody's coming to the hill, like you, you have a product that's going to fail very quickly so but you know on the other end of the spectrum if you give a mouse a cookie right so you don't want to 
you want to figure out what the users are trying to build more than like find out that that problem space and then figure out how to solve it in a way that's that's meaningful to them that enriches their lives somehow so that's the like the product angle i've always found that that's sort of uh the lead in such a way that you can actually cultivate followers <laughs> uh and and that's tricky on the sort of cultural, purely, here's how we get work done side of things, I, I think there's a lot that goes unappreciated uh, about leading engineering teams and working across like organizations to build something uh, good. And it's this uh, ability to just organize to lead people toward, you know, like, here's a decision, here's a strategy, here's how we're going to execute on the strategy. I know those are like business words uh, that might be funny to some people, especially hearing me say them, but, but it, it really matters to actually know where you're going, decide how you're going to get there, and then figure out like the way in which you're you're going to to make that progress towards your goal. And I don't think that I, I think that people tend to, especially early startups, tend to accident their way through it. Uh, and I, I'm all for one, or I'm all one for, you know, kind of figuring it out as, as you go along, but but learning how to focus an organization to deliver something as one unit uh, is an, an incredibly powerful skill that I think really sets uh, one company, one team apart from the others. Uh, and the work that goes into making that happen is substantial. <laughs> What's the product that you've helped bring to market that you're most proud of? Uh, definitely Sensu. That was the brainchild of uh, a number of very smart engineers at that company who were just dedicated, an absolute pleasure to work with. I got to hire quite a few of them. And both the process of building the product and just having the sort of like ability to envision what we think monitoring is going to look like and and deliver that was i mean it's thrilling right like it's not every day you get to go work on your favorite product and make it into what you think people want it to be and what you want it to be what um would you say is the definition of observability it kind of usurped what we used to call monitoring or systems management. Eh, curious, curious to get your take. It's one of these uh, cliches. I don't think anyone stops anymore and asks, what do we actually mean by it? Yeah, yeah. It, it's funny. I, I, gave, I gave a whole talk where, where we talked about words and definitions a while back. I, you know, I, I look back at that talk and I got some things right and I got some things wrong. I, I think that uh, the definition I gave of observability then is all right. But it's really like observability is the ability to view from every aspect the function of a system. It is everything from is it up to how fast is it 
to how much space is it taking up. So it, it, you have all of these many dimensions of, of, a, of a system that you need insight into at any moment. And, and a, a system's ability to provide that insight is observability. I like it. I'm gonna call both Miriam and Webster. Right now, get, them, get them on the phone. It's a little wandering for them, I think, but it's, you know. <laughs> How has the pandemic magnified the importance of observability? Yeah, this is an interesting question. Well, it hasn't, Dan. Observability has always been important to know. Um, there, are, there are a lot of things. Because everybody's all digital now, sort of the lines between work and life have been blurred in a way that a lot of people aren't accustomed to. It makes, it makes being able to switch off more important than ever. <laughs> and in order to do that, you have to have confidence that when something goes wrong, you're gonna know about it. I think that, I don't know. I, I think that people have, begun to, I think that people have begun to appreciate their time more than they used to. And I've personally seen, I mean, even at New Relic, you know, we're an observability company. Uh, we have a number of products in the space. And even there, we're always talking about how can we make this better? And all of these new problems that people have, right, where during hours where they'd normally be working, where maybe traffic is normally at its highest, like naturally during the business day, you know, you see a larger amount of usage of people using observability tools of, because their traffic, let's like say it's e-commerce is gonna be higher during the day based on where they are and where their customer base is, you know, located. But now it's like, well, okay, uh, you know, they've got kids, uh, they take care of their kids from 8 a.m. to noon. Uh, and now they're just not around for like the Slack messages that stream in that are sort of these like low signal, high rate notifications. Um, so making sure that the signal that you're getting is very clear and very valuable is more important than ever because you want to know as quickly as possible um, and as confidently as possible that something is wrong because now it has an even higher chance of interrupting something that is a lot more important to you these days. <laughs> so we talk, at least theoretically, about a future beyond uh, the horribly cliched AI ops and beyond SREs and maybe beyond observability to something that some call no ops. So call it self-healing infrastructure. And um, you rolled your eyes just like I roll my eyes when <laughs> I hear that. Why is that um, kind of a controversial notion? Is that, will we ever be at that point? It's always somebody else's ops. It's always somebody else's servers. It's always somebody else's infrastructure. I don't know. I, one of the things I, I talked about in my talk, um, monitoring is dead, uh, was control systems. Because uh, observability does get a lot of its influence from really old concepts in control systems engineering. And the thing about, control systems that I think is really hard to 
apply to the kinds of things that we in IT in software build is that what we build is very dynamic. The, the original concepts that went into observability, these were, these were machines that did the same thing all day long that had lifespans of, or have, I mean, it's not like they stopped doing this, that have lifespans of years that are on 24 seven that have very predictable failure models. It's a closed system. Like it, it's not something that's being continuously perturbed throughout you know, at this point, all day and night by users, by administrators, by developers, by testing, by performance testing, it, the unpredictability of the systems that we build are really what makes the whole idea of no ops just unfathomable to me. <laughs> Like the, the problem space is so complex that I don't even think we're fully capable of rationalizing about it yet. At one point, serverless computing was unfathomable to me too. Yeah. And um, there, I got to admit, you know, maybe I shouldn't, but there was a time when I would say that the old pets and cattle analogy didn't, you know, didn't really work for me. And yet now, you know, I've definitely had to, had to rethink that. I'd love for the audience to get your perspective on um, just kind of the, the, the decades old pets versus cattle debate. First of all, maybe just what it is in your own words. And then, um, it, you know, are, are, is there a future where there are still pets? I think there will always be pets. I, this is sort of unrelated, but I think the analogy holds really well. Uh, so I have a friend who uh, is helped start a hardware company of all things, uh, and I love them for it, and it's amazing. Um, but I was talking to, um, you know, like some of their product people and whatnot, and there was this question around, you know, why would anybody buy this? Like, what is the the motivator for even having a data center, right? And it ends up being about uh, hyper-specialization, where for the most part, an AWS can meet the needs of 90%, 99% of everything anyone ever needs to do. And then there's that 1% who simply just needs something nobody else does. Um, and maybe, maybe eventually your ideas about how you should address those needs will change to sort of make you rethink, well, you know, now there's this cost trade-off where maybe if I go the commodity route, uh, because we don't have to go build all of this infrastructure and, and all of these special hyper-specialized things, uh, we'll just adapt what like our technology to work on something that somebody else built. Um, but I don't know. I, I think I think builders love to build. So uh, maybe it's just the human component that doesn't let us get there. That may be what holds us back. <laughs> it's a very human pursuit. Yeah, it is. So I got to shift gears a little bit. So you're uh, you're both a, a technologist, but you're also an artist. Uh, talk me through how does a, a, a technologist and an artist uh, manage through a quarantine? Oh, 
It's, um, it's funny. I, I go back and forth with how much time I spend in, in dance and singing. Um, and the sad, sad, saddest part about the quarantine for me is that both of these things are just incredibly difficult to do now. Uh, they both have a very communal aspect. Um, and as much as I do enjoy an online dance class and, and virtual choir rehearsals, it's, it's in no way the same. Um, or even I, I do virtual voice lessons as well. So the communal aspect is gone. It still sort of happens. It's not quite as fulfilling. And I find myself kind of flowing toward, oh, let's, let's tinker on the computer a little bit today instead. Um, so it's, it's almost put it a little bit on the back burner for me, which it's, you know, generally fine, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I miss, uh, I, it brings a nice balance to my time when I have rehearsals at night or classes or that it's that like sort of hard stop of, okay, no, it's, it's 530. I'm going to switch into ballet mode now and go stretch and warm up and go to class. Um, but, you know, there's still some of that. I've seen you light up on stage when you're performing, kind of like, uh, you know, when you're speaking about IT tools, you know, you light up that way. And, and just to think about, you know, the impact is, is felt on all of us, but two things that I know you're so passionate about to have been so constrained by the pandemic, I, it, I can just imagine that you, there's a constant process of trying to, you know, re, uh, fill, fill the void that, that was left by those social activities. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I do, I do sort of perform for my neighbors uh, now, like, I, you know, used to. Yeah, lucky I, neighbors. I, I, <laughs> they've actually stopped by and kind of like uh, a, a couple of them have, have stopped by before and said like, oh, oh, you sing. And, you know, they're very intrigued. And uh, one of them, it's really funny. He was like, I have to, I have to admit to you, I kind of, I kind of window stalked you the other day. <laughs> And I was like, that's, pandemic term. Yeah, yeah. Windows I was like, stalking. that's uh, simultaneously creepy and endearing. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I think no. So I'll uh, I'll crack my window uh, once a week or so and uh, play a little piano and do a little singing. And uh, nobody's complained yet. Text me when you're doing that, and I'll uh, I'll cruise over. All right. <laughs> Greg, one, one, uh, one fact about you that uh, might be surprising to either listeners that know you or that are just getting to know you. There are so many facts about me that anyone that has ever met me, had they, had, were they to find them out? Um, no. Uh, well, uh, here's a really fun fact. Uh, I've got two. I'll, I'll give you two. When I was a small, small child and still a soprano one in the Houston Children's Chorus, I sadly performed at a Republican National Convention in Houston, Texas, right in front of uh, then-candidate uh, George Bush. And you just uh, admitted that yeah, on a, yeah, on yeah, a podcast. On a podcast. Uh, this is growing up in Texas, y'all. Uh, the other is uh, when I was in uh, high school, uh, junior high, junior high, high school, uh, I dressed up as Barney for children's birthday parties at the local skating rink. Somehow that's less shocking to me than the first one. <laughs> I'm still trying to get my head around that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's wild. I, I've lived a wild, wild life, my friend. Wild, wild life. So uh, get out your crystal ball, Greg. 
and uh, tell me what in three to five years will be commonplace at work that today would just seem surreal or silly. Uh, we're all going to be using Windows. <laughs> Sorry, that's my that's my funny answer. Thank you for predicting the past. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh you know assuming the pandemic never ends because uh you know i'm i'm a doom and gloom kind of while smiling kind of person um i think the neatest possible thing that we could do is uh one figure out video conferencing that isn't laggy but what about even what would be even cooler than that is uh virtual reality workspaces man i think you know, we're gonna we're gonna be going to our jobs in second life uh rolling up into conference rooms where we can actually see you know my cat boy representation of myself just bring my final fantasy 14 character into work with me instead of a zoom virtual background and uh yeah 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 I put on my daughter's Oculus headset, and as much as it's 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 thrilling and it's immersive, yeah, I get vertigo after like five minutes of like throwing snowballs at the, <laughs> at, the at the naughty kids. Like, is, yeah. are we gonna fix that problem? We had better. Um, it, it's something. I, somebody explained this to me. It has something to do with refresh rate or eye tracking or something. Um, no, I, I had a, a PlayStation VR uh, headset, and yeah, I know it, it wild vertigo. I, I was able to try it for maybe twenty or thirty minutes, and then I couldn't do it. No, well, Greg, we're bad <laughs> at time. How about this? I'll make you a deal. When you solve okay. that uh, that problem, can you come back and we'll talk, we'll talk about that next? How about? Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. Next time. Either that or, uh, or when you perform at the Republican National Convention, we'll have you back. <laughs> oh, oh, no. I think I'm already canceled. <laughs> That's just called blackmail. Uh, good stuff. Well, Greg, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Uh, definitely look forward to another, another version of this conversation. To all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. We're back next week for another episode of AI and the Future of Work. If you enjoy the podcast, go ahead and subscribe to our newsletter. It's at peoplerain.io slash podcast. People reign like the reign of a queen or king.io slash podcast. Thank you for listening. And thanks again, Greg. <laughs> <laughs>